0: welcome to lpo offstage with me yolanda brown well that's a wrap for another series of the podcast series six has been an absolute blast from discussions of space in music via Holst's planets to finding out what the musicians get up to outside the orchestra and welcoming guests, including organist Anna Lapwood and conductor Ben Jernan. We've also loved featuring questions from you in this series. Do send in any questions you have for the next one to offstage at lpo.org.uk. But now a look back on some of the best bits from series six. First, we hear what it's like to actually get inside an organ pipe. It all started with a this or that question from me. Anna, you're on tour. Which would you pick or which would you prefer, Europe or the US?
1: Oh, I have two different answers for this, depending on whether I'm going. If I'm going for for food, which is how I like to determine quite a lot of my uh, travel, then I would say Europe, food and wine, I think combined. If I'm talking about instruments, I would probably say US because the size of the organs in the us is just on a different scale i mean you get organs that have pianos inside you have organs that have full batteries of percussion instruments inside i went recently to the organ at boardwalk hall which is one of the largest organs in the world and i got to go inside an organ pipe as it was being played i mean it's extraordinary and so yeah it's on a slightly different scale there
0: Inside an organ pipe, while it's being played, I need i need to just delve a little bit deeper. This quickfire thing has just backfired, but that was that's amazing. Could
1: you feel the air coming through? Did you have to wear ear defenders? How did that go down? I was inside a 32-foot pipe and it was one of the quiet 32-foot pipes. Otherwise, I would not have been inside it. But you can basically activate the pipe from underneath it as a tuning tool. I've got a video of it. It was loud, even though it was one of the quiet pipes. And the air just rushes up so you see my hair basically stand up on end and yeah your ears kind of shake a little bit it leads your head ringing for a while afterwards don't try this at home I would say it was under supervision (laughs) but uh, it was yeah it was pretty cool pretty
0: cool indeed organist Anna Lapwood there now Min and Martin reveal how they found love in music
2: when Martin was going to come to academy to do his masters I was also going to continue at Academy as well and we needed a new violist for our quartet and I was thinking oh I recognize that name and I remember him being quite good so let's get him to do some rehearsals with us and then so yeah in the end Martin joined our quartet and then we kind of got together after that basically. (laughs) Oh I love it!
3: (laughs) It actually started because at the beginning of Royal Academy they did chamber music speed dating Speed dating for dating's sake. For for quarter.
0: No, for 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 if you're
2: looking for a new chamber musician in your group, they would rotate you around different rooms and people who are looking to be in a chamber ensemble would come and everyone would switch around every 15 minutes. Yes. So you play with lots of different people and then you find someone who works in your group and then, yeah. So it was
4: (laughs) multi-level speed
2: dating. (laughs) Multi-level. Oh, my goodness. Have you heard any other success
0: stories from... From this activity?
2: Um, or are you kind of the chosen couple? I'm sure there are some. Um, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure There must be. I'm sure that's
3: not why they do it, but that's how it worked out for us.
0: And can you remember the year of when you first met at Guildhall?
3: 2010. Yeah.
2: 10 or 11, yeah. And then
0: congratulations, you got married 2021.
2: Yeah, in September it was.
1: Yeah, Oh, thanks. that's
0: amazing. Well, Thank congratulations from all of us here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's lovely to hear that, you know, the first time you met, you were making music together. Mm. What is it like to perform with each other?
2: It's great, actually. I mean, especially being in a quartet together. Already a quartet is a very intense relationship with the four of you. So working together and being in a relationship together is something that you have to manage quite yes. <laughs> yes. carefully. And just remain very respectful, very professional all times. Don't let anything come into the rehearsal room. That's going to affect not only you two, but the other two as well. This has got to be a good working environment for everyone. Yeah. I think we've figured out, more or less, how yes. to do it's that. A, it's
3: a great, I mean, sp- especially playing in a string quartet is a great way to really get to know someone.
0: It was so amazing speaking to Min and Martin and just finding out how it all works, you know, working together, but also in a relationship. And that happened way back in the beginning of Series 6 and set us in really, really good stead. In the summer, the LPO head to their second home, Glyndebourne. Conductor Ben Jernan takes us to the heart of the opera house, The Pit.
3: If we walk to the podium... Yolanda, come and stand on the podium itself. Can I really? Please do. I
0: just keep seeing signs that say, mind your head.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And so when you look at that stage, it's quite something, right? Well,
0: that was one of my questions. What can you see? Yeah. So you are, uh, come and join me, come and
3: join me on your podium. Uh,
0: <laughs> so you are watching the performance at the same time.
3: Exactly, yeah. So I've got my eyes up at the stage, trying to take in everything that's going on. And this is a really busy show. So right. there are chorus people running around all the time. And as you can see, the sets, it comes over the top of the pit. It does. It's a huge panoramic view. It's beautiful. We've got a great set with massive doors and big windows. And then I've got to look after everybody on stage and then also everybody down here so they're as well. Looking
0: at you for cues as exactly. much as the orchestra are as well,
3: and we have screens. If you just look over there, you can ah, probably see yourself on a, on a monitor over there. <laughs> and there's, um, yeah, they go all the way up oh, there, and there's are. some backstage as well. And we that's have, for the performers. Yeah, we have an off-stage trumpeter as well, so I have to cue him using those screens as well. So there's quite a lot <laughs> of um, organisation going on. And, and if, how many people in this orchestra? Um, I think there is probably about forty people. I think mm. off the top of my head, mm-hmm. it's quite reduced for this um, repertoire. Other pieces would be bigger, more Mm -hmm. romantic works, Um, but this is quite a classical-sized orchestra.
0: And how is it sort of keeping that control? Because you're you're in charge of tempo, in terms of pace, in terms of dynamics, and things like that. For the singers who are performing, I'm just turning around for the first
3: time. (laughs) 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 Hello, auditorium. (laughs) (laughs) You're quite close. Like, really, I mean, I can touch people's knees if I turn around, yeah. (laughs) Do they ever try to talk to you? Some do, actually, yeah. What do you do? Uh, I just smile. (laughs) I'm not here to have a chat, I'm (laughs) like...
0: Polite smile, say no more.
3: But you can hear hear all sorts in the front row, actually, yeah. It's
0: brilliant. I can see another screen behind us here, so they really can see you from all angles. Mm. Has there ever been a time where you felt, look at me, hello, I'm telling you something, and they've been caught up?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's quite a regular occurrence in opera. You can see um, video clips of really famous conductors like Clive, you know, pretending to stab a baton through his heart when it goes wrong on stage. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, I guess performers on stage can get slightly wrapped up in their own interpretation, and I get it. It must be so intoxicating up there and singing out this way. Mm. So your job, really, I've learned over the years, is to kind of go against my nature and I have to be a, a slight dictator at the start of opera and say this is what we're doing this is the tempo can you get to it and then you ease off a little bit in the in the performances yes, yes. and everybody finds their own way but each show is different it can always feel slightly different on every night some nights the singers don't feel great so they don't want to hold their notes as long and you want to keep everything moving for them and but I think my priority is always focusing on the atmosphere if you get that right everything else follows I think
0: yes Conductor Ben Jernan, there. It was so fun getting a full backstage tour of the Glyndebourne Opera House and Gardens. One more listener question for you both. This is from Jay Williams. I'll extend first to you, Dave. Who are your top three composers when it comes to brass writing and orchestration?
2: Oh,
5: right. Well, we've already mentioned Mahler. I think that's a, that's got to be a given. The harmonies, the orchestrations, the writing, the the way he seems to write so well. For the instruments, it just makes yeah, it makes them really rewarding to play and to listen to as well. As far as orchestrations, now here's a here's one a slightly left field. I think Puccini his orchestrations are absolutely fantastic. It's just the tiniest little cymbal scrape or the, or a little pizzicato cello or a little thing here and there, and I think his orchestrations are just magical. And for pure beauty of music and simplicity, although clearly not simple. There is uh, certainly beauty in the simplicity of of a lot of Mozart's music. I think he was such a genius. I heard someone say that if you had a copyist who wrote out all of his music just as a copyist, it would take Longer than the 32 years or however old he was when he died. So it's like he was so incredibly fast at writing it and it was all in his head and he was just writing it down. He wasn't composing it, he was just writing down what was already in his head.
0: Lee, do you have any that either you concur with or you'd like to add to that list?
4: I mean, all of those, I agree with Dave and I'm just trying to think a little bit sort of later on. I will probably say Strauss. The Strauss writing, I think, is is for us especially, or all, all the brass is just stunning and challenging. You know, it's all over the instrument. If to play extremely quietly, very powerful at times. For me, I would say Shostakovich, because the low brass in Shostakovich is is normally used at a sort of fairly gruesome moments, uh, so very powerful moments in those pieces. I think all these symphonies have got some. Very big trombone and tuba bit, and then probably selfishly Prokofiev, I'm not sure if Prokofiev's particularly great for trombone, is he, Dave, or
5: not in the same way as it is for tuba, I don't think, but it's still it's still good, yeah, I wouldn't put him in my top five then
4: because I think what I love about his writing is you you could have a full orchestra sounding glorious and big and and within two bars you have like a piccolo bass and a something you know he's got this amazing way of orchestrating with still having wit and in the score you know with just three or four instruments out of the blue and I, I really enjoy I really I've always enjoyed playing and listening to Prokofiev but at the same time on tuba the instrument wasn't invented till about 1850 something ah, yes. so anything else before that you know I love Mozart uh, Dave mentioned and I adore Bach and I, I of course I was never you know it never features
0: that was tuba player Lisa Macliss and trombonist Dave Whitehouse there's a whole episode all about low brass and more do check it out wherever you get your podcasts So now Anna Lapwood gives some advice to people who may be a bit apprehensive about giving classical music a go. And Anna, you do such amazing work on social media, really making the organ more accessible and playing with fantastic artists that maybe wouldn't usually be akin to the organ. What would you say to somebody that's sort of broaching classical music, saying it's not for them? How would you sort of entice them to the genre
1: and to the organ? Try and keep an open mind because classical music, classical musicians, the organ, any instrument that embodies such a huge range of musical styles so even if you think you've heard say some organ playing and you were like oh I'm not entirely sure if that was for me that's one aspect of it you'll be able to find something that feels like a rave you'll be able to find something that feels like a beautiful waltz you can find little bits of any instrument that appeal to you and it's Being able to find those things and then follow the little kind of trail that takes you on to your next musical discovery and your next one and your next one. And I think that's the approach we all try and take as performers as well. We we're all trying to keep an open mind and you never know uh, the the next thing that's going to catch your ear or or kind of ignite a little spark of excitement in your brain and take you down a, a new musical journey for a while.
0: And why is it so important for you to spread the word? I mean, your TikTok videos are fantastic, so informative, so joyful, so entertaining. But why is it important for you to sort of spread the word in this way?
1: Well, I think part of it is trying to make sure that anyone and everyone feels like they belong, in a classical concert venue, in churches as well, because churches are not just places for people who believe in God. It's somewhere people can come just for a feeling of safety or a feeling of relaxation or whatever it is, or just appreciating beautiful music. But then I think the other side of it is the organ is an instrument where so often the organist is hidden from view. You don't really see what's going on. You're just being asked to listen without any visual stimuli. And that's not what we're used to. I mean, if you think about Britain's Got Talent or anything like that, it's always a kind of a visual spectacle as well as sound. And so I guess what I try to do is just bring people as close as possible to the experience of actually getting to play the instrument themselves. Make it as if they are sitting right next to me on the organ bench. Because whenever you do get someone sitting on the organ bench, I've never had someone not go, oh, my gosh, this is the most ridiculous instrument. This is so cool. Why do we not all know about this?
0: Organist Anna Lapwood. That clip was from a fascinating deep dive into Saint-Saëns' Organ Symphony. It's always really interesting to hear about what musicians get up to outside their performing life. Sue Burling reveals that she has a whole other career running in parallel with her corongle playing. Taking us out of the orchestra a little bit, you spoke about hobbies and I'm I'm intrigued. And uh, one of the benefits of being here on Zoom, doing it as a video call, is that I can uh, do a little bit more digging as we're talking. (laughs) And uh, Sue, Sue. You have uh, said that you are qualified as an interior designer Mm. and I'm on your website. It is absolutely fabulous. Congratulations, (laughs) Uh, Sue Burling Interior Design. Mm. uh, Some of the projects are just beautiful. And so it leads me to ask this question. If you weren't a musician in the orchestra, what would
6: you be doing? Is it this or would it be something else? No, it would be that. You never quite know where life's going to take you and pandemic hit and we were all sitting around not doing very much, except I really was. I was working very hard on mm-hmm. somebody's house, which kept me sane. It is something that I'd probably morph into if I wasn't playing. The playing is, it needs 100% commitment. You can't dabble with what we do. You can't be a part-timer, even though I am a part-timer in terms of schedule, I have to be on it and it's, it's you can't let that go. But if there's a big chunk of time when I'm not required by the orchestra, that might be something then that I would do. And I'd only take on work if, if I knew there was a big gap. Yeah. But it might be something that I, I'd say might, I think it probably will be something that I'll do when I find that I can't play anymore. Well, I do hope so. It's Absolutely beautiful oh, I'm uh, glad you designs and,
0: and interiors. <laughs>
6: Well, we were just lucky got to be some perks with not being we together. bought a wreck we bought a wreck, and uh it was more of a wreck than anybody thought, including an architect that I work with, but it's it's you know, we've ended up with a really lovely home. We downsized, but it was a lot of work, but it's been worth it. Yes, and uh, I learned a lot absolutely and uh, I just love that it's another creative process in a different way. You know, people know what they like and they know what makes them feel comfy, and for me, it's a lot of instinct. I just want to make them have a happy place. It might just be one room, whatever it is, but I, I really enjoy it. Fantastic.
3: Maybe you could um, redo the backstage of Festival Hall Sue.
6: <laughs> that needs a Get lot of running. work. Get her on it. That so much work. <clears throat> yes, no problem.
0: <laughs> oh, the skills of the LPO players are infinite. Sue Burling and Hugh Kluger there. We covered many topics in that episode from dogs, to venues. Now, Holst's Planets. Rachel Masters tries to decide which is
7: her favourite. I do like Neptune, actually. If if it's going well, Mm. and if we've got a good sound going, and if we're confident that the chorus is sorry, but he was so unkind writing that vocal line there. It's so hard. If anybody's ever done it, you know, just coming in at the end of a concert off stage, to actually deliver that is a really, really big ask. So I would like to empathise with all those women who've done it because it's jolly difficult. It's much easier to play a full concert than to come on at the end and do something really hard. Yes. But I think it is, you know, we've talked about how it's amazing the way the music just dissolves into space I think the whole movement is truly beautiful and it's got that lovely, ethereal, otherworldly quality about it and I, it's got some lovely harp writing as well. So I think if I... I would probably go with Neptune. Perfect. But it's a very difficult question to ask because I, the whole thing about playing the whole of the planets as a harpist is there are two fantastic harp parts and it's the collaboration of the two instruments and it's the balancing of the sound and that goes through every movement. It's an absolute joy to play. Perfect answer. Thank you, Rachel. And Francis?
4: Well, I'm trying to re- recall which movement this is in. Maybe Anne or Rachel could help me. There's an organ glissando, at a fortissimo cadence, and you're suddenly left as if floating in space. Is it at the end of Saturn? Saturn? I can't remember.
7: It's Saturn. It's a cataclysmic thing. When That's right. Possibly. It's the bring of old... Is it the bring... Oh, no, hang on. No, it's Uranus. Yeah, I've got That's it here. Right. It's it, yes. yes.
4: yes. You're propelled into space and suddenly you've left the
5: earth behind and you're floating.
7: And there there follows some fantastically magical harmonics from the heart <laughs> department.
2: That's <laughs> right. <laughs>
7: Who
0: needs VR? Space travel there in Uranus from Gustav Holt's Planets. We heard from harpist Rachel Masters and cellist Francis Bucknell. And a final feature question for Lee and Dave. Well, I do have to wrap, but I do want to ask you a very quick fire question. Apart from your instrument, what is the must have item that you need to take on tour with you, Dave?
5: Coffee. <laughs> I take my, <laughs> my, my AeroPress kettle. Mug and a little hand grinder and my home roasted coffee beans.
0: Oh, you mean business. Absolutely okay. Absolutely
5: essential. Yeah. Don't do things by halves.
0: Thank you. And Lee? Uh, Nurofen. <laughs> I'm seeing a trend happening here. I can't tell you why. Oh, I will not I ask. I think we all know why. I don't Can, ask I, can why? I also
4: do a little plug as well? Can I do a little plug?
0: Yes, please. I'm having a yes. barbecue
4: tonight. You can come round and bring a bottle. <laughs>
0: And now we know what the Nurofane is for.
7: <laughs> no, no, no.
0: <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you both so much. You've, you've really opened up the lower brass section of the orchestra and it's been wonderful to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. I bet Lee puts on a fantastic barbecue and I need to try Dave's home roasted coffee for sure. Now, we're at the end of Series 6, but Series 7 is coming. And once again, we're asking you to send in your questions for the players, conductors, fans, soloists, anyone really. Please email offstage at lpo.org.uk with your questions and you may be featured in Series 7. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. In this highlights episode from Series 6, we heard from organist Anna Lapwood, violinist Min Joe, viola player Martin Ray, conductor Ben Jernan, tuba player Lisa Maklis, trombonist Dave Whitehouse, corongle player Sue Burling harpist Rachel Masters and cellist Francis Bucknell and if you'd like to hear more from any of the musicians you heard today or haven't yet heard what Hugh's alternative career might be you can check out the whole series wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to email your questions for series 7 to offstage at lpo.org.uk see you next time